Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dr. Anjana Katwa is a freelance TV presenter, earth scientist, geology expert, education committee member of the Geological Society, and is the recipient, along with her team, of the Geographical Award from the Royal Geographical Society for services to education on the Jurassic Coast. Anjana has over 15 years' experience of working on the Jurassic Coast and is a specialist in bringing stories about the origins and formations of natural landscapes to life for a wide range of audiences. She now works for Wessex Museums as the engagement lead, helping to bring underserved audiences into museum spaces. And Jana joins us today as a follow-up to her wonderfully engaging lecture on the Jurassic Coast, which I strongly recommend you watch. And Jana, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. In your recent lecture with us, you said here in the UK, we have a far more interesting, exciting story. Um, about our Jurassic rocks, which were recorded under the waves. What did you mean by that? Well, the Jurassic rocks in the United Kingdom, so they stretch all the way from Dorset and all the way up through the country, and they pop out again on the Yorkshire coast. Now, those rocks record life under the sea 200 million years ago. And the reason why I said this was interesting is that 200 million years ago, the planet looked completely different to how it looks today. The continents were in different places. There was a big supercontinent called Pangaea. And at that time, as that continent started to break up, there were several large land masses at that time. But the land mass where the United Kingdom is today was actually pushed under the water. So what that gave rise to was a huge kind of ecological environment that was rich in marine reptile species, some of which are extinct. You know, we won't see the likes of them again today. On land, if you go to places like Wyoming and China, you will find fossil evidence of the Jurassic and they are all land-based reptiles. And of course, these are the things that you see in movies and, and books and stories. And they're all very well and good, but I'm very heavily biased because I find the underwater life extremely exciting. You know, these creatures were so strange. They were, they they grew to the colossal sizes and, and they are, you know, you would almost look at them and think they're figments of our imagination. But when you look at their fossils, you realise that these creatures actually existed. And their fossils, of course, can be found on the Jurassic Coast. Of course. And, you know, obviously the Jurassic Coast, this is a World Heritage Site, so it's internationally important for its fossil record. But, of course, if you go up to the Yorkshire Coast, because we don't want to forget about Yorkshire's Jurassic Coast, you can also find similar fossils up there. Um, But the fossils that we do find, these marine reptiles like ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs and the super predator of the Jurassic Sea, the pliosaur, they really are extraordinary creatures of the past you know they some of these creatures you know particularly the pliosaur was the size of a double-decker bus and you just think of that and and you think of creatures today in the sea today you know blue whales and and things like that but really this life underneath the waves at that time 
was incredibly dangerous. You wouldn't have wanted to have been swimming about in the seas at those times. No, certainly not. Um, how does the theory of Pangaea relate to the Jurassic Coast and what you've just mentioned? Well, the whole story around Pangaea existing and then subsequently breaking up and then those continents moving around the globe is critical to the story of the Jurassic Coast because what it does is it, it begins to tell you that story of environmental change over the course of 185 million years of time. So if we go back to the beginning and we're talking about the Triassic period, Pangaea was a complete landmass and the rocks of the Triassic period were forming in dry, hot deserts. As the continent starts to break up, we move into the Jurassic where the rocks are forming under the sea. And then eventually we, we get to the Cretaceous where the land pops up again. And what we see are islands dotted about in warm tropical seas. And this is the Cretaceous. So the whole idea of continental drift and the, the, the idea of Pangaea being, being this supercontinent that breaks up um, is absolutely critical to that story of 185 million years of time encapsulated in 95 miles of coast. Can we use three case study locations to talk about the Mesozoic era, which covers the Triassic, Jurassic and Cretaceous periods? There are three locations that I talked about in my lecture. Um, let's talk about Sidmouth first, because that's a really good location for geographers and earth scientists, geologists to go to, to look at the Triassic period rocks. These are rich red sandstones that were deposited uh, in an environment that very much like Namibia today. And what's lovely about Sidmouth is it's got a very accessible esplanade. You can walk along the seafront, but you can actually see the rocks themselves. They are towering cliffs of red sandstone. And what's really interesting is if you look very closely, but you don't get too close because that's very dangerous, uh, you can actually see the banding of uh, gypsum, which is a rock uh, that's formed from uh, salts which were deposited well which were precipitated out in salt lakes uh, existing in those deserts at the time so the rocks at Sidmouth are give you a really good indication of the environmental conditions 240 million years ago during the Triassic if we move along the coast so we're always moving eastwards and as you move eastwards the rocks get younger in age so the rocks at Charmouth in Dorset are around about 200, 185 million years old. And these are the Jurassic rocks. And they are composed of clays, shales and silts and limestones. And when you look at the colour, there are this, re this really rich grey colour. And you can see banded limestone within the cliffs themselves. This, again, is this incredible location, very easy to get to for field work. And it's a it's a brilliant place to examine lots of different things. So obviously you can find the fossils on the beach that are being washed out by the waves, but also you can see, you know, coastal erosion in process. You can see evidence of mass movement. So there are lots of evidence of rock falls and landslides along that particular part of the coastline. But those rocks are a real record of life of um, the Jurassic seas 185 million years ago. So Charmouth is, is a brilliant place to go to kind of experience that part of geological time. Further east we go, Warbarrow Bay is really quite a spectacular place. It's a little bit more difficult to get to because it's actually located in the army ranges on the Jurassic coast. So it's only accessible in school holidays and also um, at the weekends when the army opens up the roads to access 
this particular place. Nearby is the village of Tynham, which is an abandoned World War II village. So you park there and then you walk for about a mile or so and then you get to the bay itself. What's particularly interesting from a geological perspective is that Warbarrow Bay showcases almost the entire sequence of the rocks deposited during the Cretaceous period. And again, that's absolutely mind-blowing because you think here is, you know, 60, 70 million years of geological time stretched out in one beautiful bay. And, you know, you can observe how the rocks change in colour and also rock type. But it gives you an indication if you if you can look at the clues, it gives you an indication of how sea level and climate was changing during the Cretaceous at that time. So when you put all three locations together, you've got this complete story, this narrative of how the Earth was changing over this 185 million period of time. And that's what makes the Jurassic Coast a World Heritage Site. And are these type sites, Anjana? What does that mean? I did mention the word type site in my talk, and I did wonder whether that might fox a few people. When geologists refer to type sites, we're actually referring to locations which are internationally recognised for holding the best evidence of rocks or fossils anywhere in the world that, that defines a particular point in geological time. So... For example, the rocks at Charmouth are a type site for marine reptiles and fish for the Jurassic period. And the reason why is that scientists have gone there, they found the fossils, they've recorded them, they've been put into museums, and we recognise that that particular location is one of the best locations to go to anywhere in the world to find those particular types of fossils. Uh, another type site is Pennington Point in East Devon, um, just, just on the edge of Sidmouth, actually. And those cliffs have yielded some of the rarest Triassic fossils anywhere in the world. And that is also a type site. So when we talk about type sites, they literally define uh, our scientific understanding of a particular type of geology or fossil, which then helps us to piece together the puzzle that is Earth's history. And who owns uh, most of the Jurassic Coast and these these type sites? Well, it's interesting you say that because the Jurassic Coast is a tapestry of ownership. And we're going back centuries into history here. Um, the National Trust, who I mentioned in my lecture, own about one third of the Jurassic Coast. And, and obviously, we know how the National Trust has been established. Um, properties and land have been donated to the charity over time. And that's how the National Trust has acquired um, parts of the coastline. Other parts of the Jurassic Coast are owned by private landowners. So if you have an opportunity to go on fieldwork to see Lulworth Cove and Durdle Door, that particular part of the coastline is owned by the Weld Estate. I mentioned Warbarrow Bay uh, being on the army ranges and actually the army do own quite a large part of the Jurassic Coast itself because during World War II, parts of that coastline were taken over by the army because they were worried about invasion from you know, German forces during the World War. So they actually own quite a large kind of area of the Jurassic Coast, particularly in the Purbeck area. And then, of course, we have all of the other uh, kind of county council and uh, town councils who manage the landscape. But 
yeah, it's safe to say that that 95 miles of coast has a very kind of mixed tapestry of ownership, which makes managing it very complex. And with that mixed tapestry, is there a common policy to, to erosion and to protecting the coastline? There is a common policy which falls underneath the Jurassic Coast World Heritage Site Management Plan. So where we look at how to protect um, protected landscapes like this from overdevelopment or things like, you know, particularly for, for tourism, there are all sorts of levels of protection put in place. So, you know, we do have sites of special scientific interest, which are known as SSSI. We have Ramsar, R-A-M-S-A-R, which are protected wetlands areas. And, and that's specifically unique to the fleet, which is a lagoon behind Chesil Beach. Um, we also have area of outstanding natural beauty, which does cover part of the Jurassic Coast as well. And that has the same um, legal protection as a national park um, for the Jurassic Coast. And then on top of all of that, we have the World Heritage Site status, which uh, is a non-statutory uh, status when it comes to planning. So when you put all of those together, the, the whole partnership of the organisational structure of how the Jurassic Coast is managed has to respect those protections in place. So the policy is, when we come to aspects of erosion, is that erosion is managed in a way where the natural um, aspects of the coast are championed and enhanced where possible. So where, for example, we're looking at National Trust-owned land, the National Trust own a policy of managed retreat. So the coastline is not defended. The natural processes are allowed to take place and to progress. So where we see Black Ven, that landslide in Lyme Regis, we don't have any kind of, you know, seawalls or rock armour stopping that from sliding into the sea. The coast is allowed to roll back um, naturally. It gets, gets a little bit more complex when we have large communities or coastal towns and that's where the conflict lies um, and where we looked at Lyme Regis in the lecture yes it, it's a very very complex uh, position because there are certain parts of the coast where we have to understand that um, communities have just as an important need as the natural environment and we have to find a balance for that. The key aspect here is the World Heritage Site boundary. And where it begins and where that boundary stops is dependent on where we can see natural cliffs. So where you might go to somewhere like Weymouth, for example, and that's a really good place to go for fieldwork, is you can see how developed and urbanised part of the seafront is. You don't see natural cliffs. However, if you venture away, slightly away from the seafront and you go more towards the beaches where you start to see the natural cliffs beginning to appear and the rock armour and the seawall start to disappear, that is part of the World Heritage Site. So it, it's funny to think, actually, that the boundary of the World Heritage Site stops and starts as and when you see natural coastline appearing. And this is really important because... When we think about coastal defences, and, and you could go to lots of coastal towns on the Jurassic Coast and you can see how they how those coastal towns have been defended from the sea, you have to remember that those particular parts are not officially part of the World Heritage Site designation. They are the designation starts on either side 
of the managed areas. And I think that's a really important concept to take away. Mm, how interesting. I read in the papers recently that there's actually a danger of UNESCO World Heritage status due to an increase in footfall and tourism. I think the, the article is actually on cultural sites, but is that applicable? Is that the case with the Jurassic Coast? I think that's a really interesting point in regards to what happened at Durdle Door uh, last summer. Um, as we came out of lockdown, people flooded to natural spaces because they were yearning to get back in touch with nature, if you like. And particularly, I think it's summer holidays and people are desperate to get, get to the seaside. There has been a management plan in place for the Jurassic Coast since it was inscribed uh, 20 years ago. And what this does is it, it helps to stretch that tourist season into the shoulder months. And that's what we call it. The shoulder months are kind of your, your out of season uh, tourist months, if you like, you know, when people wouldn't necessarily choose to go to the coastline because it's too wet or too cold. Tourism in itself is a benefit to the Jurassic Coast because obviously coastal communities uh, along Dorset and East Devon really suffer from seasonal deprivation. So tourism is, is a huge bonus, particularly in those shoulder months. But what we have to really look at carefully is managing large numbers of visitors at the height of summer but when I say managing, it's helping those visitors to understand how to be more responsible in terms of their behaviour and how they come to the coast in order to enjoy what it's got to offer in a way that respects the environment. How this affects our UNESCO World Heritage status, I, it doesn't necessarily impact on the status itself because the coast is so dynamic. You're talking a stretch of almost like a hundred miles of coastline and our world heritage status here the Jurassic Coast it's the rocks fossils and landforms that make up the UNESCO uh, outstanding universal value and it's very rare that people coming to the coast would actually impact and affect any of those uh, aspects of the coast if you like it's very different if you go to somewhere like Stonehenge and you're walking around the monument and you decide to maybe graffiti your name on it or carve your name using, you know, a sharp instrument. No one would ever recommend that. That would definitely yes. threaten World Heritage status. But I think tourists coming to the site itself, I mean, obviously there is issues of footpath erosion and, and such like, particularly near high footfall areas like Lulworth Cove, Durdle Door, um, but they don't necessarily impact on the outstanding universal value of the site itself. There are Lagerstätter sites dotted all over the world. Are they also found on the Jurassic Coast? These places are really quite extraordinary. And, you know, what's remarkable is that one of them is also on the World Heritage List, and that's the Messel Fossil Pit in Germany. When we talk about these extraordinary places and why they are of international significance. It's because the fossils there have exceptional preservation quality. In fact, you can actually see soft tissue preserved in the rock itself. And this is incredibly unusual because what it points to is a remarkable coincidence of conditions at the time that that creature died so that its soft tissue material could be preserved in, in that environment where fossilization was taking place. So it's extraordinary to think that we, we do have record of soft body tissue 
soft-bodied organisms within our fossil record that can enhance our scientific understanding. You've described the Jurassic Coast as a landform laboratory. Can you run through a few of the unique landforms of the Jurassic Coast? Yeah, I did describe it as a landform laboratory. And and I think it's a really good way to illustrate how dynamic the coast is because it's constantly changing. Some of the key landforms that most geographers will be able to kind of, you know, tick off their tick off their list will be those coastal stacks at Ladron Bay and of course Durdle Door, the coastal arch. But we've got other stunning landforms such as the barrier beach at, at Chesil Beach. Um, probably one of the finest barrier beaches in the world. And then, of course, we've got landslides, rock falls, um, and the, probably the most famous stacks in the world, Old Harry Rocks, over at the eastern end of the site. So what, what? So the Jurassic Coast is a really phenomenal place which kind of encapsulates almost perfect examples of coastal geographical landforms in one place. You've mentioned a couple of really recognisable landforms there. Um, is it just rocks and landforms along the coast or are there other things relevant to, to geographers on the Jurassic uh, coastline to look out for? Yeah, I have mentioned some of the key obvious examples because they're the most dramatic, aren't they, when you see these pinnacles of rock, you know, standing out proudly to see. But the ones that I really want to focus on are the mass movement processes. And I think what's really unique about the coastline is that because we have different types of rocks as we move along the coast, you can see how the geology responds to mass movement and to weathering. So for example, we see Black Ven, which is the largest coastal landslide in Europe. That's that's really good evidence of a rotational slip. If you go further along to kind of more cliffs on Portland, for example, where we see the hard limestone, you can see phenomenal examples of kind of huge rock falls with great big boulders, you know, nestled at the bottom of cliffs. So mass movement is a really key feature that you can see illustrated along the coastline. Some other examples of great coastal landforms that you'll see are wave cut platforms. And if you go out towards Lyme Regis and particularly Monmouth Beach, you will see a wave cut platform, which is an international type site. So it's really, really important for its fossils. But what you see is how the cliff has retreated along a base, a foundation base of limestone. And it's just a really good example of how, uh, well, coastal erosion has caused those cliffs to retreat, revealing a limestone ledge, which is packed full of fossils. And it's really a dynamic environment, which is always changing. And I think this is why I've described it as a landform laboratory. Finally, the quote that I absolutely love um, from your lecture is, if you're holding a pebble, you're holding onto a piece of Earth's history. What is your message to young budding geologists and geographers? My message to those young geographers and geologists out there who have been inspired by my lecture and this podcast is to use your imagination, spread your brain to places where you can be challenged to think further than the environment you currently live in today in the now. Because in order for you to understand the impact of climate change and the climate emergency we're currently existing in, we don't know what the future is going to be. And it's many of these young people that are listening to this podcast right now 
we are relying on you to have the skills and the knowledge and the confidence to deal with the uncertain future that we all face. And what geography and geology gives you as a skill is to stretch your imagination to think about what life was like hundreds of millions of years ago on Earth and using that understanding, that scientific basis to then apply to what we are doing now on our planet and what we could be doing better for the future to ensure we have a more sustainable and regenerative approach to how we deal with the current challenges that we face. Thank you very much for joining us today, Anjana. For anyone who's listened and enjoyed what they've heard, the lecture is online on our website titled 20 Years, 95 Miles, 185 Million Years, a celebration of the Jurassic Coast World Heritage Site. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.